Welcome back, I'm Brian Bunce, Pharma Editor at WTWH Media. And I'm Kayleen Brown, Managing Editor for Device Talks. We are so pleased that you're joining us on the fourth episode of AI Meets Life Sci. Uh, without your support and without the support of our sponsors, SmartTrack Business Intelligence and Catalyze Healthcare, uh, we could not make this episode in this season. So thank you very much for continuing to support us and tuning in. Big episode today, right, Brian? Yes, we have one of the biggest big pharma companies, Sanofi, on with us. We also have Medable, which is one of the, the biggest decentralized clinical trial companies have raised more than like half a million dollars in funding. So two cool interviews with two female execs. I know that you and I have been slacking back and forth on um, the different sort of discoveries that you've been making or connections you've been making with all of your other interviews, AI meets life sci aside. Uh, so update me. Uh, any interesting players and in, uh, interesting announcements? Uh, give me, give me, give me, give me. I talked to Amgen and they talked about shaving two years off drug development timelines. By 2030 was our goal. So that'd be huge because it takes more than a decade usually to develop a drug from start to finish. It costs $2.3 billion on average. So if you could shave two years off the process, that's That'd be a huge development. I had an interview yesterday where a company had developed something kind of like ChatGPT, but it's for real world data. So it's called ChatRWD and I got a demo of it. So a doctor could say, I have a patient who has osteoporosis. She's Latina. She's 65 years old. I wanted to see if you have patients who are similar to that demographic who have taken like XYZ drugs. And then you can go through tens of millions of patient records to find patients who've taken specific drugs and you can see how they did. So it's, it's basically like an observational study. So in the past that would have taken months to do kind of manually, but with this chat RWD application, you can do it in minutes, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And, um, the guy said that only about 20% of medical decision-making is based on like sound rigorous data. Cause oftentimes doctors just don't have full access to data. So like a tool like that could potentially be a, a pretty big deal that if you say I have a patient, I want to see, are there like a hundred patients just like that out there that have been on XYZ drug? So I thought that was really cool. And, um, there was a functionality he mentioned about it as well, where he said it could have been like a, a quote, Joe Rogan fact checker. Cause if you remember like during the pandemic, there was all this talk about like certain drugs. Like, I don't know if Joe talked about hydroxychloroquine, but there was was it Iver, ivermectin anti-parasitic and i think he was talking about taking that drug and recommending that people take it for covid and the ceo of this company said like with that app you could like essentially see like does it work or not because invariably as people out there who are on ivermectin who've gotten covid so you could like see is there a signal that shows some possible efficacy it might not show causation but you might be able to get a sense from the data so I thought that was interesting too. That's so fascinating. I mean, I, part of me thinks that maybe <laughs> these episodes should just be me interviewing you. <laughs> You're just a fountain of knowledge, Brian. I love that. So speaking of 
data. Uh, let's introduce our keynote interview. So you and I sat down with Dr. Helen Marianos, the head of Sanofi's R&D portfolio strategy. And this interview kind of came off of the 2023 announcement about Sanofi going all in uh, on AI and sort of their vision around the first AI-powered R&D in biopharma. So we dug into that with our interview with Dr. Marianos. And, you know, I'm just going to stop there. It was one of my favorite interviews. I say that every single time, but really she's such a wonderful speaker. So with that, Dr. Helen Marianos of Sanofi. Welcome to AI Meets Life Sci, where we explore the transformative impact of artificial intelligence on the life sciences. Like the start of the dot-com revolution when user-friendly browsers like Netscape open the door to widespread adoption, generative AI technologies like ChatGPT have helped democratize AI, making it accessible to hundreds of millions and completely changing the way we interact with AI and machine learning. In each episode, we'll sit down with medtech, biopharma, and tech companies driving the integration of life sciences and AI. We'll focus on breakthroughs and what's on the horizon, but also guide you past the hype. Join us as we explore and clarify the frontier of AI meets life science. Helen Marianos, head of Sanofi's R&D portfolio strategy, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you taking your time with us today. And we always like to take a 40,000 foot view before we get started. And um, as Brian and I have been privileged enough to conduct these interviews, we realize that we need to start with what is your definition of AI? I mean, it's such an umbrella term. So how do you define AI in context? Sure. It's a great question. And I'm going to give you a very practical answer to that because I'm not a, like a technical digital person. I'm a business person. So we really are defining AI in two forms, like expert artificial intelligence and then sort of snackable AI. And what we mean by that is when we're using um, uh, data and analytics to predict um you know, and forecast into the future. So essentially that's our definition. There's expert, what we call expert AI from an R&D perspective related to like very scientific technical rules um, where we're getting like tons of uh, very detailed data and doing artificial intelligence on that. And then there is other sort of what we call the snackable AI that is really applicable across all business roles. And it's also data-driven. It's just not to the same extent in terms of the models and the underlying data that's needed to be able to do predictive analytics and use artificial intelligence. Helen, I saw you have a PhD in chemistry and a background in management consulting. I was wondering how that influenced your current focus on AI at Sanofi. Um, well, of course, like thinking about that um, only kind of makes sense <laughs> in retrospect. Um, so I, my uh, PhD is in biophysical chemistry. I'm a structural biologist. I, I did x-ray crystallography back in the day when that was how you did structural biology. It's not true anymore. Um, but there was no artificial intelligence. But I, you know, obviously to get my degree, I did a lot of modeling and simulation. And so I've always had an interest in that. And then I, you know, 
got a lot of business experience through the McKinsey Consulting and have always been sort of obsessed with data and analytics. Uh, and then that has really been carried through throughout my career. Like in every kind of role that I've done, I've always taken a very data-driven and analytical approach, even if it maybe wasn't necessarily required. And then, then in the portfolio space, we're, we do do a lot of like modeling and simulation because there's a lot of uncertainty in R&D that we're trying to manage. And so it's similar in the sense that I don't have, I guess, the same like fear of um, leveraging models and trusting what comes out of a model. If I know what's going into the model as an input and I understand essentially how an algorithm is working and learning, I feel more comfortable and then trusting that outcome. So I think that makes has made me more open to trying to leverage AI to drive a business transformation in the function that I'm in. Helen, I, I know that many big pharma companies have had some degree of ML AI projects in the works for some time. It also seems like what Sanofi is doing is different in the past 12 months or so. There's been like a renewed focus. Can you talk a little bit about what the company now is doing and how that differs from past efforts? Yes. So um, we have been doing uh, AI and machine learning for some time, like you've said, and um, and, you know, many other large pharma companies have been doing the same. So from end to end, if you think about like discovering new molecules, so we would be applying it from target identification to, you know, optimizing molecules and like drug design to all the way through thinking about like novel endpoints and biomarkers and really leveraging it to do protocol development and a lot of the data and processing that takes place like in clinical studies to accelerate, optimize site selection, those kinds of things from end to end. Now we're starting with, with Gen AI to also do document writing and things like that. So that's like on the science side, kind of from end to end. And the amount of time that we have been investing AI across research and development it varies, you know, because it, it advanced at different levels across that value chain. What I would say now is we're applying it universally across the value chain. And what's different in recent times is really the company's commitment to, to be the first large pharma company to, to apply AI at scale across the company. And that's what's really different. So... That's kind of where this partnership with Ailey Labs to develop the Play app comes in. And what you um, see from an R&D perspective uh, in terms of the, uh, the Play app, you know, we're looking at it to, to optimize our portfolio investment decisions and strategic decisions, and then also optimize operationally our clinical studies. But that's just one module at the company. There are like nine or 10 other modules across the business and they're all correlated with each other. And that's what the difference is. It's like there's over 20,000 people at Sanofi that are using this and about 9,000 are using it directly to influence their decision-making. So that's what feels quite like revolutionary in, in the like let's say the last 12 months or so the amount of progress that we've made there 
across the company feels very different. And that is the part that is also, I think, pretty differentiating between Sanofi and maybe the other large pharma companies who I know are doing a lot of the same end-to-end across R&D that I was referencing before in terms of discovering and then developing molecules. Helen, could you say more about how Sanofi's Play app has kind of changed the culture of the company? I understand that it's a smartphone app that draws from a billion data points. You have a, a user base of tens of thousands of people. Can you say more about that? Yes, and I, I think the the agility that it provides has really helped actually drive quite a cultural change at the company in terms of even how we like behave and interact in meetings. So everyone has like their phone, you know, in the meeting and, you know, a question will come up, well, what about this? Or when is this readout happening? Or should we make a trade-off between that molecule? Or how does this one compare? These kinds of questions or, you know, what, what, what are we thinking the peak year sales of that molecule is going to be? Or, you know, all these kinds of questions that will come up in all different kinds of meetings, like all different context meetings, et cetera. And everyone's like, I don't know. I don't remember. Let's look, let's look on play and look it up. And the, the nice thing about that is everyone is looking at the same fundamental data that's in there. And so you're looking at, well, what is the, what is the Sanofi planned information or piece of data? And then what is the AI saying about that data input? And then it starts a different kind of conversation around, well, what if the AI were were right? What would we be doing differently? And then you're not wasting time to even just trying to get the data foundation that you're wanting to establish a conversation about because it's on everyone's phone and it's accessible to everyone. And the R&D data is accessible across the company. So if someone else, somewhere else in the business is saying, well, I need to plan, you know, um, launch resources for this product in this country. They can go into the app and they don't have to call someone in R&D to say, like, when are we going to get this regulatory approval in Mexico? You know, they can look in the app and say, the team is planning for an approval date of this. The AI is saying approval date of that. And therefore, I can wait three months before hiring these people to do the launch because... You know, I don't need them right away and I can use those resources in a smarter way. And that is a totally different way of working. Um, and so I think the accessibility and the visualization and the fact that it's a uniform platform across the company is really changing the culture of the company. And in some ways that may be more powerful than the data itself. So this is really exciting because We haven't heard that yet. So then maybe a step in addition to that. So you have this accessibility and shifting the way your team is thinking, the way your team can communicate, the sharing of the information. What about recruiting, you know, new talent or training? Like how, what's your approach to training the team so that you are using the information as accurately and as helpfully as possible and then recruiting other team members? That's such a great question. And it is really important because we do need training on 
well, what are the questions that I should be asking that we now have this like, like data accessible to be able to answer or that AI enables us to ask that we could never ask before. And so we have started to do training across the company, um, a, a digital training course uh, to help you know, senior leaders and, and business. It's not, it's not, they're not for digital you know, experts or anything like that. It's really for business leaders to understand enough and get the training to be able to ask the right questions, to know how to use the data. And then of course, so that's training our current workforce to be able to know what to ask. And then um, in terms of getting the AI experts to really like fully enable this from a, you know, a digital expert perspective, because you really do need that. Uh, to engage with the business in the right way. We do have uh, centers of excellence in various different locations. There's one in Toronto, one in Paris, New York, Boston, Barcelona, that are you know kind of magnets for talent where in locations where the talent resides um, to really try to attract and maintain, I guess, what, you might say it's like that critical mass of talent to enable what we want to do from a business perspective. Could you say more about CEO and C-level engagement that supports the AI strategy? I understand that Paul Hudson's been very involved. Yes. Yes. Paul is really involved in the, you know, visioning of how we're leveraging this to really drive business transformation in the company. And there is a senior leader like myself for each of the modules that we have across San Ovi. And we're part of what's called a play club. Um, we meet um, at least in person, at least twice a year. Uh, I would say if you include virtual, maybe like once a quarter essentially to engage and share ideas to innovate, to create, to share learnings across modules. And Paul is really, you know, he leads that, right? That is part of, and he really relies on us to be change agents in our parts of the business and to work together to say, let's build a use case across these two modules. Let's get this working in the correlator where we're correlating all these data pieces, we can now answer these business questions. And then very specifically on the R&D one, you know, he's at the investment boards where we're using the, the app on a regular basis. And so he, you know, sees firsthand all of the new, um, you know, minimal viable products that we're releasing and we're on like a 30 day cycle. So essentially every new, every investment board meeting we have, there are new capabilities, new features that we're literally using and leveraging to inform decision-making. So he is really very much involved across the company, across all those modules, but in the one that I'm responsible for from an R&D perspective, and he's one of the member committee members that are using that on a regular basis. And we did undergo some training to say, uh, you know, this is, this is, these are the business questions that you can ask. This is where you go and how you answer that question. And this is the value that you get by doing that. 
So, um, and I will do all these, um, you know, teasers with them before the governance board meeting. Check out this, you know, look at your AI agent before the meeting and review these reels and come to the meeting prepared to discuss the following things. Uh, make sure you log on and, and see these different things. And then we'll use it live in the meeting to have those kinds of portfolio trade-off discussions or whatever it is that we need to do. But that took a little bit of time when those things weren't there before. It's almost like people didn't know what questions that they could now answer that they couldn't answer before. So there was some training that was needed there to be able to do that. Another dimension for AI projects is alliances with other stakeholders. Could you say more about yes. partnerships with R&D companies that have an AI focus or other types of stakeholders? Yeah, so, um, you know, along the, let's say that value chain across research and development that we talked about, there are various different companies that we've partnered with for various different, you know, purposes. So like Accentia for like drug discovery, we're looking at, we partnered with Atomwise um, to, you know, again, for, you know, drug discovery, a little bit of structure-based drug design. We're doing quite a bit on the development front with Oaken for like novel endpoints, also like patient identification, really driving development um, with them. And then like in silico medicine is another partnership that we've done. And that's really been around like target identification. Um, we've done and and a little bit of like optimizing um, like molecular design, et cetera, lead optimization, that kind of a thing. We've also done some partnerships related to more like clinical optimization on the clinical study side. So with like site identification, optimizing enrollment, those kinds of things. We've done some work with Capgemini um, in that, uh, along those lines. So we're really looking at, and then we're working with Ailey Labs on the Play app. So we really are looking at uh, partners that provide expertise uh, across the, you know, across the value chain. And, and that does require multiple partnerships. There isn't a single AI company that does all of these things. And it's really about like strategically um, doing the partnerships along each of the sort of, let's say, R&D problems that we're trying to solve and doing so in a like thoughtful and strategic way across the board so that, you know, we're, we're really, again, taking this AI first approach it's it's we're finding ways to incorporate it in all the steps that we're taking across the board and and we do need to leverage partnerships for that because we don't have all the internal expertise to be able to do that it seems like there's varying appetites for ai within companies and sometimes the people who are more resistant can be a hurdle for ai projects can you say more about how sanofi ensures a singular ai strategy given that there's a, a range of appetites for AI? Yes. And I think um, it goes even beyond, you know, getting people to sort of be open to looking at AI. You know, in order to enable the AI and like a real-time approach, we had to completely change our business process on how we govern projects, how we update our project data, all of those kinds of things. 
And that was a whole endeavor on its own where you have to sort of really explain to people there's this vision of what the future world could look like. And these steps that we need to take um, are necessary to ultimately get to that vision and to get people to feel kind of propelled and and um, inspired by that vision to overcome that inertia to make that change. And we've been successful so far in being able to do that, to modify the business processes. And we had to do that first, even before we had some of the digital solutions. On the AI-specific thing, what makes people nervous about that is, I can't explain it, or I'm not sure I understand it. Uh, and then what if I get questions and then I can't answer those questions? And the way in which we've been tackling those kinds of uh, challenges is really about being responsible with the AI, making sure it's transparent, making sure there is human oversight, uh, making sure that people can understand it well enough, even if you don't, you don't know how to model and you don't understand coding, you can understand these are the inputs, the model takes these things into consideration, it learns, and then it's providing you that output. This is the data that the model isn't taking into consideration that would be missing and um, that you might have from human judgment and how you judge that. And then the other thing we've really been trying to do is change the frame around the AI. Meaning, instead of people trying to like battle this, well, am I right or is the AI right? Um, and that makes people feel really uncomfortable. But in R&D, in many ways, we have the beauty to say, we don't know who's right. That's the whole reason of our existence because we we don't know what's right. That's we have a bit, you know, we have a scientific question, it generates a hypothesis, and then you don't know if it's right. You test the hypothesis and then you get the data and then you find out if it's right. So it's really been much more around forget about right for just a second. Like just release yourself from that and say, what if this were right? What would it mean? What would we do? And then that can kind of create creative strategic alternatives that really makes the conversation smarter, makes the decisions better. And it frees people up from, is this computer gonna tell me I'm wrong about something? Or is this, is this AI gonna replace my job? It's been very much more focused on this is how we're all going to get smarter as individuals, as a collective organization. That's how we're thinking about it. Now, eventually we're gonna to get to a place where the AI is gonna be even better than it is today. And maybe we will start saying, well, we kind of need to know which one is right. And we will, and in some cases we're already there with some aspects, certainly on the expert AI, we're asking those questions. But on some of the newer elements and how we're applying it, I think we have a little bit more time to really check on the accuracy, get more data to be checking this before we have to start answering that question. Um, and we can get a lot of benefit in t like from now until we get to that point. So there's a lot of thoughtfulness in rolling out this acceptance of AI. How do you measure 
that adoption and how are you measuring the impact of the adoption? So we do have what you would expect, um, you know, like user analytics and understanding how are people using the app and the data in the app. And we are providing feedback, you know, if AI is making a recommendation, did we take the recommendation? Why or why not? And then we're looking at what the outcome of that is. So there's some data and analytics behind the app that we can leverage to try to measure success. We're still early stages for that. At the moment, most of what we're trying to do is say, like through vignettes and specific examples where we're saying, you know, the AI in this particular use case or business decision really influenced the trajectory of the conversation and influenced the decision. And use that to one, help build like reassurance and momentum with respect to, to using AI to drive judgment, business judgment and decision making to complement what we're seeing from like a user analytics perspective. Where are people clicking? How are they providing the feedback? Are they making decisions based upon the AI recommendations? Are they affirmative or negative? Why is that? So that also we can learn and get the AI to be, you know, better in terms of its ability to make the recommendations. Excellent. Helen, I know that Brian would agree with me when I say I wish we had more time. Uh, we don't. So with that, let's kind of look to the future. So when we say future and with the rate of how quickly the technology is uh, improving and new technologies out there around for artificial intelligence, it's impossible to say what the future is. But let's say five years. What could AI specifically in the life sciences, advancing life sciences research and biopharma. What could that look like in five years? I is, we are such on the verge, I feel, of so much disruption in the industry. It's, it's really hard to, you know, like even imagine that. Um, but what I think, you know, broad brush, strokes where we're going to be is I think a lot of the pharma companies and healthcare companies are going to really become like tech companies that have a therapeutic focus or let's say expertise that happen to produce medicinal products. Uh, I think it's really going to fundamentally change all of the roles, how we do the roles uh, that we currently do. And I think the expectation is going to be that every role incorporates AI into its workflow, whether that's through optimization and efficiencies and simplification or if it's enhancing intelligence and uh, improving our probability of success or our cycle times in terms of being able to run the clinical studies. I think it's really has the potential to be, even in that short time frame, as disruptive as that. 
Well, yeah, huge. I mean, mean, what do you say to that? (laughs) I mean, maybe we'll be wrong, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, you'd rather be on the cutting edge of that possibility, even if you didn't get it exactly quite right in terms of what it, what the, you know, maybe it doesn't go as far as, but I remember when we first started with this business transformation and portfolio and, you know, like other large pharma companies, we started quite behind in terms of some of the digitalization, et cetera. And I remember at the start of that, people saying it's it's such an ambitious vision, but never like really believing that it would be possible to achieve it, uh, given where we were starting from. And we've really surprised ourselves in how much progress we've been able to make to the point where it's like, we wanna rewrite the vision every year. So I, you know, on the one hand, it seems almost like how could that possibly be in five years? But on the other hand, I I think, well, every year I've surprised myself on how transformational this has been and how we're taking it to the next level, to the next level. Uh, And so I would rather be, you know, ready and on on the cutting edge and have overestimated it than be behind and really become extinct because uh, you just can't compete in an environment like that if you haven't prepared, prepared your workforce, invested, et cetera. Helen Marianos, thank you so much for joining us on AI Meets Lifestyle. We so appreciate your insights, your perspective, and here's to being on the cutting edge, even if we're wrong. I'd, I'd more prefer to be on the cutting edge than left behind. <laughs> so thank you again, Helen. Thank you. app, the P-L-A-I app that she talked about. I think I want to have that app or something similar for our job. <laughs> Not sure who'll build it. Thing, right? <laughs> How do we request that? Is there a help desk <laughs> ticket that we can submit? <laughs> That's great. You know what's interesting? But, I, yeah. Well, I mean, so the play app made me think about one of the comments um, and th- that we've been kind of hearing around Sanofi is this idea of potentially... Oh, I'm I'm a little worried saying it because it's a bold statement. But could Sanofi be considered a tech company in the future? I mean, that's I know it's bold. Don't rip my face off. I think that's a interesting topic because it seems like the big pharma companies are going to have to be more tech savvy in the coming years. But the question of how much can they reinvent themselves while also developing drugs at the same pace and responding to shareholder needs is an open question. Well but I, I'm seeing signs of like potentially deals worth a billion dollars plus that are AI focused. So it seems like something's going to shake up <laughs> given the amount of money. It's been like not as ambitious as like I've seen two deals that were like worth potentially more than a billion. I think usually it's more in the sub hundred million dollar range, maybe often less than that by a big margin. Okay. So we're talking about money, money, honey. What's our next interview? We have Michelle, the CEO of Medable, like one of the kind of early companies to help establish this decentralized clinical trial space. They've raised, like I mentioned earlier, like half a billion dollars in funding. 
interesting story, um, cool kind of like female leader um, there. And again, you have an example with this forthcoming interview talking about how they're using, in this case, generative AI to automate some tasks involved in clinical trial prep work. And I think that the basic claim was that you could cut in half like certain parts of clinical trial timelines using Gen AI. And with that, we have Dr. Michelle Longmire, CEO of Medical. Welcome to the latest episode of AI Meets LifeSci. I'm here with Dr. Michelle Longmire, who is the CEO of Medable, a pioneer in the decentralized clinical trial and digital trial platform space. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks for making time to chat. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So to kick things off, I wanted to ask kind of a, a big question about how you view technology. And before the call, I saw a video actually is about 10 years old where you're talking about how you saw Medable as kind of like an AI focused company, which is background I didn't realize. But the question I have is like, how do you conceptualize of AI in decentralized clinical trials and what significance does it hold for the company? Sure. So, you know, I think taking a step back, it's surprising that the number of drugs approved per year has been relatively unchanged in the last, say, 10 or 15 years. So, you know, somewhere around 50, 55 drugs approved a year. And what that says to me is that technology leverage hasn't really been applied meaningfully to this problem. Or like other areas, you should see an increase in the number of drugs approved a year because the barriers would become lower. Um, not that you would lower the standards, but the barriers would become lower and therefore cost and time would both you know, be shorter and be less in terms of what was required. So with that in mind, I think this is an incredible area, clinical development, to apply technology to really accelerate not only a single drug being approved, but the overall number of drugs approved per year and over, a, say, a 10-year timeline. Right now, at the current pace, say there's 10,000 uncured or poorly suboptimally treated human diseases, it's going to take us about 200 years to create treatments for all of those different conditions. Imagine if we could 10x that, bring true leverage into the problem with innovative technologies, then that timeline goes from 200 years to 20 years, something potentially feasible in most of our lifetimes. That's what Medable is going after. So whether it's AI, cloud, or mobile, we want to bring invention innovation into clinical development to really 10x this pace of drug development. So a quick follow-up there, like there's been several companies that have talked about this, this challenge of bringing new drugs to market, like roughly $2 billion. I've seen different numbers, 10, 12 years or so on average. Why do you think it's been so hard? Like, and based on the data I've seen, like, I think the costs are going up for drug development broadly. So why do you think it's been so, so much of a tough nut to crack? So when you look at clinical development, there's a number of challenges. One is it's extraordinarily complex. You are you know, recruiting patients all over the world, and then you're measuring these patients against an intervention. And our ability to effectively measure intervention is also an area ripe for innovation. Right now, some of the sensitivity and specificity with which we're measuring the effect of that intervention requires us to have a significant number of patients, literally statistically significant, and with less sensitive and specific measures of effectiveness or efficacy, we have to have more patients. So you're running a very complex process in clinics all over the world. You have to find patients who can be in these clinical trials, and then you're faced with the measurement challenge. 
So I think that just when you look at it kind of soup to nuts, it's a very challenging problem. With that said, I believe we've maxed out the opportunity for manpower to bring benefit to this and that technology really is where we're going to find the new leverage. Could you share just a bit of background on kind of how the company got started? So obviously you're a physician and I think I recall from a video I saw that part of the idea came from you're working on clinical trials at Stanford, but maybe you could just kind of walk us through kind of like the, the origin story to how you got to where the company is today. So my background, I'm a physician scientist and I've always, you know, I've long been interested in human health. And I think disease is a very kind of a late stage manifestation of a perturbation in homeostasis. So one of the original ideas for Metabol was, you know, could we use something, the human digitome, the full kind of composite of all digital and digitized data about a human to detect a deviation in homeostasis before we'd even call it a disease. So these were some of the ideas we were, I was working with very early on. And I saw AI as really one of the only ways to solve that problem because you, you know, have a, an abundance of data. At that same period of time, I was working at Stanford and treating patients with a condition called systemic sclerosis, which is uh, an autoimmune disease that causes fibrosis of different organs within the human body, including the skin, which I was a dermatologist. And I was looking at differences in identical twins with this disease. So not only is it a recruiting challenge, you've got a rare disease and you're recruiting identical twins, some of the rarest of the patients who are living with this condition. But you all, we also had a big data problem because we were looking at the epigenome, the expressed genome in these patients and trying to understand through the epigenome why one twin would have uh, more aggressive disease than the other. In some cases, the other twin didn't even have the condition. So it was really there that I realized, wow, clinical research is limited by the patients who I can get into this clinic at Stanford in my, in my circumstance. And it's very limited in the type of data we can collect if we only limit it to the patients who can come there and the data we collect in that clinic. So as I married this realization with this idea around the human digitome, I thought we need technology to create the bridge for patients from an access perspective and from a bigger data perspective. And that was really how the idea around Metable was born. Um, and since that time, you know, we've taken it from an idea to now a multi-hundred person company. We've raised over $500 million of venture capital. But frankly, the thing I'm the most um, proud of and inspired by is the number of registrational clinical trials that Metable platform has provided that bridge for patients from an access and a data collection perspective in the development of novel drugs. And that's been super exciting. We've really created that global platform to provide that bridge for patients. I've heard a lot about the promise of AI and automation tools to speed up various processes in the clinical trial space. And I saw a press release, I think it's embargoed right now, but it won't be by the time this airs, that talked about how the company is able to cut clinical trial technology deployment timelines by half. And just from a high level, could you talk about what in particular like that is and how it works? Sure. So, you know, when we think about setting up this digital bridge uh, for patients to connect with clinical trials and collect data from patients, that type of data we collect is a multifaceted digital solution that is essentially partnering with a patient in a given disease area that reflects a very robust scientific protocol. And so one of the challenges in getting these clinical trials live in the world is the configuration of that digital solution. 
And so what we've done is we've used AI to essentially take a protocol and translate that into a mobile application that is running on a patient's phone that can partner with that patient and really partner with them on a multi-year journey, asking them the right questions at the right times to understand how they're doing with regard to the intervention, their intervention that they have been given in their clinical trial. So AI has solved for the complexity of translating that protocol into a digital application. And we see, think this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the leverage AI can provide in collapsing clinical trial timelines. This is a particular area of interest for us because it's also an area of human error. You know, when you think about creating an application that's so complex in terms of data collection, there's a lot of room for human error. And what we found is that by leveraging AI, you can standardize, streamline, accelerate, and create solutions that actually have a higher level of reliability. Could you share just a bit more detail on kind of how the technology works in conjunction with ECOA? So electronic clinical outcome assessments, I guess, for people who aren't familiar, but just from a high level, can you speak to that piece and like how it, how it, how, how it accelerates clinical trial, trials? So, you know, take, for example, a clinical trial in psoriasis. You know, let's assume this is an injectable drug that patients, you know, you might be recruiting 500 patients all over the world. So for that clinical trial, you're going to need a solution that is in the hands of the patients and in the hands of the doctors, where you're going to be providing assessments that are digitized for that patient. So there might be a number of different assessments, assessments about the skin, assessments about the state of well-being, assessments about the physical performance of the patient. And that combination of scientific questions is unique to that clinical trial. And before AI, we literally had to manually program our systems to create a digital application that would ask that combination of questions and then take that solution and translate it into over sometimes 70 different languages, depending on how big and globally that clinical trial is. On average, it's about 25 languages per trial. And AI and our, you know, the way we've implemented it, it solves for all of that. It creates and combines all of the different data types that need to be um, posed to the patient from a questionnaires to a workflows and also includes the languages to be translated. And, you know, that kind of step function change is significant because that would take our teams, you know, anywhere between 12 and sometimes 16 weeks or longer to create that digital solution. ECOA is actually something that is typically on the quote critical path of a clinical trial startup. And what that means is that the ECOA can be one of the reasons that the clinical trial won't start on time or poses a challenge to getting the patients in the clinic, the solution in their hands so they can enroll. So what we've done is we've used AI to ensure that every single time you're launching a clinical trial, you're not waiting on your ECOA solution to get those patients enrolled. And that's a big step forward because this is vital to the vast majority of clinical trials. As the company focuses more on AI and ramps up its technological sophistication, are you having to hire new workers? Are you training people internally to be more tech savvy or combination of, of both? It seems like you're in a, a good spot in Silicon Valley in terms of talent. Yeah, it's been really exciting. You know, I think new technology comes around only so often that offers this type of leverage. So 
you know, at our, in our team, we have a very strong spirit of invention. And then within the team, you see the people who are just true masterminds of invention. And what we're doing is we're cultivating a culture of invention because now is the time where you need big ideas that are leveraging something that's very new. So I think we started out with an advantage based on our workforce, but we're also building that culture and cultivating that. You know, we call something Medible, we have this game changer um, kind of acknowledgement or honor. So we're really excited in 2024 to honor our game changers from 2023, who were the technology pioneers within our company who came up with a lot of these ideas and solutions. But yeah, you really need that game changer, inventor, invention mentality, uh, which is why I love being a part of Medible, what inspires me every day. Um, but I think it's really critical to having, you know, to solving the problem we're after solving. I think in a press release, I saw that you expected 2024 to, to be a year where you see more innovative technologies and new ways of delivering kind of patient-centric trials. was wondering if you could share just a bit more on that point. I think that 2024, what we're seeing is, you know, there was a lot of investment we've made as we go, got into ECOA and DCT to consolidate that offering. And so what I mean by that is, you know, we've learned a lot about DCT. We've also learned a lot about ECOA. In 23, we invested in R&D to bring those solutions that combined that learning to the world. And that's what we're going to, you know, we're putting out in our press release and we're launching into the world. And I think that's true of a lot of companies. You know, the pandemic was kind of a crash course in what the world needs at scale if we're going to do things more decentralized. With that said, you know, some of those solutions we were getting out there because there was you just had to get them into the world. Now what we've had the opportunity to do is understand what that means at scale, how you combine the new with the old, something new like DCT with something that's been around longer, like ECOA. And I think that, you know, it's the convergence of a period of time that's so unprecedented, like the pandemic, emergence of new technologies like AI, and then bringing into the fold what's become mainstream, like ECOA, into clinical trials and really bringing something completely new by combining those three forces. One of the themes I've noticed in several of these interviews is this kind of notion of it takes a village for AI. And I hear a lot about partnerships. And I'm wondering if Medible could talk about, or you, sorry, you could talk about Medible's work with biopharma companies, academic institutions, regulatory agencies, et cetera. So, you know, we work closely with our partners on the regulatory side, on the big biopharma side, and also, of course, on the academic side. I think what's um, exciting is the regulators, I think, are really leaning into the value of AI, but providing, you know, guidance on where you need to, you know, double down from a precautionary perspective and what might be kind of lower risk areas of utilization. What we're seeing with our partners in biopharma, uh, especially those who have struggled with timelines of ECOA, complexity of ECOA, and struggled with you know, issues around patient access, they want innovation. And it's like, let's do this together, let's prove it out, and let's scale it up. And so you know, we had one of our key customers refer to this you know, um, product that we're releasing as a quantum leap in, in, in a category like ECOA, which they've been seeing the same solutions for 10 years. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing a tremendous amount of excitement from the regulators, from biopharma and from the academic side. The academic side, I think, is providing a lot of the research on, you know, taking a step back, not just in clinical trial 
um, kind of clinical development, but also in where the bias exists in AI, where we need to be careful when we leverage existing data sets in AI. I think academics has a really important role to play there, um, providing a strong research framework so we can all be eyes wide open um, on you know, the best uses of these technologies. It seems like one of the biggest promises I've heard about for decentralized clinical trials is this potential to really tackle some of these longstanding issues with recruitment of minorities and females. Could you just from a high level speak to that point? Sure. So we know that clinical trials don't represent accurately the population of patients who live with a condition. The other factors you have to also assume that um, you know, the diagnosis of certain diseases, there's underrepresentation because of healthcare access issues. So let's assume that if clinical trials are underrepresented of what we know to be the demographic of the disease, there's also a whole subset of people who haven't yet reached a diagnosis. So it's a gross underrepresentation at the clinical trial stage. Now, I think what's exciting about these centralized clinical trials or community-based clinical trials is breaking down some of those barriers. Like when I was at Stanford and recruiting for you know, my own research efforts, like I said, it's like patients who could come into that clinic there in Palo Alto or in Sanford, California. With decentralized, the idea is that you can recruit people in a much broader geographic area and you can embed the clinical trial process more in the community. And what that does is it also provides, I think, a trusted partner to patients uh, whether it's a primary care physician or it's their pharmacist, someone that they're already interfacing with, they have an existing relationship with, is an entry point to clinical research. That is kind of one of the goals. And now what we're measuring with our partners is how much of an impact does this really make from a diversity perspective? Some of those answers don't exist yet, but it's a clear um, prioritization in the effort itself. There's this notion too that I noticed with AI of the technology is moving so fast that it's it's interesting and also challenging, I guess, to kind of stay up to date. And then you have to, as you mentioned, focus on the diversity and the ethical ramifications at the same time. But could you share more on how Metable is like the approach and kind of keeping up to date with the technology and also kind of projecting where the technology could be headed and how to work with that? Yeah, I think. You know, our applications have focused on kind of low risk areas where we're saying, okay, this is not impacting the interpretation of data. This is basically at this point taking rote human tasks and replacing them with AI agents so that we can maximize, you know, the impact of our own team versus having them, you know, do these rote tasks. I think as we become more comfortable with AI from a data and analytics perspective, we understand how to control for bias. We understand how to control for hallucinations. We also have models that are specific for domains like life sciences. I think the applications will become far wider in their reach. Right now, though, there are some extraordinary problems to solve um, that we're focused on where we don't have to introduce that risk. There's this theme I've heard about, too, for for a long time about how as technology has sometimes emerged like EMR systems that has taken doctors at times away from patients. But it seems like now we have this opportunity as we talk about like streamlining and automating a lot of tasks um, to bring back more of that human element to clinical care, whether it's in a clinical trial or outside of it. As a doctor, um, could you share more on kind of the potential? Because it seems like with AI is kind of potential to focus more on the human and let the AI do more of the real work. Could you share more on kind of your view on that? 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have long felt, and in fact, you know, my first patent in AI was in 2013 in dermatology. <laughs> so it's something I've been thinking about for a long time that there are aspects of the current job of a doctor that I think could be done better by algorithms. Um, and there are aspects of the, you know, role as a physician that frankly are just uniquely human and meet uniquely human needs. Like for example, you know, how you provide, um, information around a challenging diagnosis, how you support someone, how you ensure they have the right support network in their life. So I think, you know, my prediction is that we'll see algorithms take a significant role in the diagnosis and that physicians will play a significant role in the management of the patients from an emotional perspective. Um, with that said, I think it is an important opportunity because you think how many times you go to the doctor and so much of the effort is focused on giving you the information, but there's not really a great way for you to take that information forward, continue to ask questions about what you just learned. I just think the healthcare system, there's so much opportunity for improvement on not just those moments when you're in the clinic where you do want that human connection, but all of the things afterward that you need to do as a patient with that new information and how many questions you have and how your life is changing, I think AI has a really big role to play there, partnering with physicians mm -hmm. and other healthcare providers. Well, great. On that note, I think we'll have to hit pause. We're running out of time, but really great catching up and thanks again for your time. Likewise. Thank you so much and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Brian, you know what caught my attention the most about that interview was how Dr. Longmire said that there's a potential to cut a standard trial build by at least half. She said there's big pharma companies are using automation to cut weeks off bill times. Boom. If you could see me right now, my mind just exploded. That's a game changer for clinical trials. And I know that when we were talking with Dr. Jeff Elton of Concert AI, we were also talking about how um, AI can change the landscape for clinical trials. So it's really nice to see other ex uh, or hear about other perspectives and other game changing companies that are reinventing the clinical trial landscape. So it's a, a pretty consistent theme that you could shave significant times off certain parts of clinical trials across like several different interviews we've had. Yeah. I feel like I start need to start collecting like a nickel for every single time that we're hearing it takes a village or it shaves the time off of, or it increases the rate of like, I'm loving this about AI. Ugh. So this was a jammed packed episode. Um, so looking forward to revisiting it and then moving on to episode five. But before we talk about what's coming up in episode five, let us talk a little bit more about the upcoming season two of AI Meets LifeSide. So once again, we are simulcasted. We are on the Device Talks podcast network right now, but we're simulcasting between the Device Talks podcast network and AI Meets Life Size network. So please, please, please subscribe to AI Meets Life Size on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, so on and so forth. If you don't subscribe to AI Meets Life Size and you're using the Device Talks podcast network to find us, you won't be able to hear us or watch us on season two. So please, please, please make sure to subscribe. Next up, we have Dr. Ha Hong, Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer, Medtronic Endoscopy. Once again, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Kayleen Brown, Managing Editor for Device Talks. I'm Brian Bunce, Pharma Editor at WTWH Media. And you can find us on LinkedIn, Kayleen Brown, just like the color. So please connect with me. Brian, how can they find you? I'm Brian K. Bunce, B-U-N-T-Z is the last name. 
excellent. Once again, thank you and tune in in three weeks. Thank you.